Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode, we highlight the ideas around rethinking the way cities are being built. We discuss the roles of planning, design, technology, and other fields that contribute to improving the urban experience. Hey everyone, this is Chris Arnold, and on this episode, we're speaking with Megan Torza, architect and partner at DTAH. DTAH is committed to contextual, responsible, meaningful, and beautiful design, undertaking work that is socially inclusive and relevant, and that contributes to the betterment of our cities and communities. The governing or sort of connective tissue of all of our work seems to be a sense of urban design, and that urban design is composed of both architectural elements as well as streetscapes, parks, open spaces, and effectively the space between buildings. Megan's professional development has been influenced by a strong personal interest in adaptive reuse and the integration of contemporary architecture into historic urban fabric. Her socially-minded, contextually sensitive portfolio includes the development and implementation of two of Toronto's most beloved community hubs, the Artscape Witchwood Barns and the Evergreen Brickworks both award-winning, LEED-certified examples of the creative, adaptive reuse of abandoned industrial facilities for -for not-for-profit clients. Megan is currently leading the design of a new farmer's market and cultural hub in downtown Niagara Falls and the Baker Street Redevelopment, a mixed-use, sustainable development which includes two distinct residential buildings, a public library, and prominent public plaza in the center of Guelph's downtown core. Let's jump right in. So Megan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So the theme of today's podcast is going to focus on one of Toronto's largest ravine systems. But before we discuss your studio's work as a whole, I really want to kind of take a step back and learn a little bit more about your background and how you came to serve the people as more of a thoughtful architect. Can you kind of set the stage for us? Sure. So I went to school at the University of Toronto graduated from the Master of Architecture program in 2005. And all the way through my schooling had developed quite an interest in what we call adaptive reuse projects in particular, which is taking an old building, whether it be industrial or having another history, and converting it with a new use for a a new client. So when I graduated in 2005, I contacted the architect who at the time had just been engaged to undertake, I think, probably the biggest adaptive reuse project in Toronto's history, which is the Artscape Witchwood Barnes project. So I I kind of knocked on the door of the architect uh, in charge of that project and said, I'd really like to work on on this with you. Do you need any help? And he said, no, um, not for that project, but I need help on other projects. And so I I was lucky enough to get a job, and that was with Joe Lobko, who is now another of the partners here at DTH, but at the time was running his own small practice. And so I, I worked on a few other projects in the course of that term, but eventually they did need help on Witchwood, and, and I was able to to work on it and, and have, a I think, a meaningful role in, in seeing that project through. And from there really developed further as, a, as an architect or a young architect. And two years after I joined with Joe in his own firm, he chose or decided to merge his company with DTAH, which at the time was known as Detroit Hillier, which is one of Canada's oldest interdisciplinary design firms, architecture, landscape architecture, and urban design. And Joe had asked me, you know, was I interested in joining him in this new 
merged venture, which of course I was. I didn't know DTAH very well at the time, but found almost immediately that it was a really inspiring place to work and a firm that was doing very important work in the city. So I've been at DTAH since the winter of 2006 and have since then become an associate and then more recently a partner here at the firm as part of the next generation or even the third generation of leadership of the firm, which Mm. was established in 1974. So we've been around for a long time. Mm, Yeah. In a little bit of my digging, I saw that you studied fine art abroad in London and you also received a degree in fine art history, if that's correct. Yeah. How does that kind of traditional background play a role in the work that you did as a young architect and now as you've kind of ascended the ranks of the industry? Right. So I did a year abroad at the Courtauld Institute in London, England, which is a school focused on the study of art history. And it was that year, it was the 99-2000 millennial year in London when the Millennium Bridge opened, the London Eye, the big Ferris wheel opened, and all of those major projects. And One of the projects that did open that spring was the Tate Modern. And so as a student of art history, of course, it was required that I go to that facility and check it out. But I think more importantly, the the whole process of living in London and listening to the conversation around how important saving that existing power station was and how innovative its reuse was, and this is a, a project that was done by Herzog and de Meuron, Um, who are Swiss architects. The conversation about saving that building was really inspiring to me because it dealt a lot with this topic called collective memory, which at the time I was studying, my focus in art history was around memory in art, specifically memorial design, more specifically still how subsequent generations of German artists have been dealing with the history of the Holocaust. And so the conversation in memorial design, the notion of the trace or the memento or the palimpsest or whatever it is that triggers memory, it was a very similar conversation that was being had about the Tate Modern. There were people in London who relied upon the smokestack of the Tate Modern to find their way around the city. And they were saying in in the lead up to the decision to not tear down the building, but in fact to reuse it, that if that smokestack were to be demolished, there would be a kind of existential loss of their place in the city. And I found the conversation really inspiring because it spoke to more than just architecture as a bricks and mortar kind of profession, but in fact, being a very important role in a city to help develop and maintain the population sense of place. Mm-hmm. And that historical buildings play a huge role in that, that if we, if we live in a city that is entirely new, it's very difficult to understand where that city came from and in, and in, in fact or in hand where you've come from. And so the notion of that a city, that the best cities are actually demonstrate a huge chronology of architecture and that old stuff is maintained and reused as opposed to torn down and rebuilt. Mm-hmm. It really inspired me to pursue architecture as a career, first of all, and, and more specifically to focus my interest and my studies on adaptive reuse as a subset of architecture because of, of this this conversation that I was privy to in my studies. Mm. Yeah, so it sounds like London was a turning point, perhaps, for your, it was, yeah. for your career. Yeah. And, and nowadays, 
from what I know of the work that's been done at your firm here and the work that you do, there has also been somewhat of a shift to integrating landscape architecture into the work that you do. Obviously, you're a trained architect, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the work has, you know, signs and symbols of landscapes. Is that a was that a, sh- a shift that you made? Were you aware of that shift or, or maybe kind of what brought on the interest in kind of combining that as well? Mm-hmm. I think the integration of architecture and landscape is very much at the core of what DTAH do and the kind of ethic of architecture and design that we undertake. The governing or sort of connective tissue of all of our work seems to be a sense of urban design and that urban design is composed of both architectural elements as well as streetscapes, parks, open spaces, and effectively the space between buildings. And so every project that we undertake in this office, whether it is a, a master plan for kilometers or miles of territory within a, within a city or you know an individual building or individual park, is tied together with this ethic of urban design and thinking in a very contextual way in terms of the place that we're working in, what surrounds it, who uses it, and how to connect or better connect the architecture with its surrounding context. And because we design those pieces, uh, streets, parks, etc., even bridges, even if I'm working exclusively on an architectural project, there is an understanding and a recognition that design can influence outside of the boundary of the footprint of the building. Mm-hmm. And our work doesn't just stop at the property line, mm-hmm. that even if we're not in charge of designing what's outside of that property line, that we should be considering in the long term, okay, if that street gets redone, or if the developments on either side of our site are reimagined or there's reinvestment, then how does our project connect not only to its present context, but potentially also to its future context. Mm. So that sort of contextual eye to the surroundings and the recognition that design is equally applicable to a sidewalk as it is to a building, I think is a is something that DTH very much brought into my thinking mm. uh, and working here. You really connect with that way of working. Yeah, yeah, I, I really get that sense when not only looking at the work, having conversations with some of your colleagues that DTAH is collaborative. There's an open dialogue between everyone in the office. You know, we talked before we jumped on the podcast a little bit about how, you know, an architect works with a designer, works with a planner, works with an XYZ. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily draw lines in the sand for when one person stops and then and the next person begins. Mm-hmm. And I think that's clear with the work that you display is that mm-hmm. you know it very much feels like a team effort. Mm-hmm. Did that always exist within the firm? Did that kind of help draw you to the firm or has that sort of spawned over the last you know few years since you've been here? I think it's always existed. That's a, a way of working that Bob Alsop and Roger Dutoy, who were the, the founding partners along with John Hillier, that was part of their ethic from the very beginning is that the work that they do does not stay within the boundaries of the of the project territory and that the thinking is much broader in terms of city building and placemaking. So that's in the DNA of the firm from the, the early 70s. But I think as, as each new generation of leadership takes the reins or, or brings their particular point of view to the firm, that same thinking has endured. It may take different forms, there are partners here with, with different interests that each bring a different kind of lens to the way in which we do our work. 
But I think given the collaborative nature of the office, we all sit in a, in a relatively open format where, you know, my neighbors to either side of me are landscape architects or urban designers. We're not kind of corralled by discipline. It's very intentional to reinforce that kind of cross-pollination and inspiration amongst us. And we also try to do, to share the work that we're doing in progress with the firm and, and collect feedback and provide as open a dialogue as possible within the, the office so that we we operate a bit more like a design studio and a bit less like a, a maybe more corporate hierarch, yeah. hierarchical kind of structure. Mm. Just to encourage people with new ideas to to voice them because, you know, when you're out of school for a decade or two or three, the precedents that you refer to are often a bit older than the precedents or the examples that younger staff might have in mind. And so there's a huge value in maintaining a dialogue where people can bring new ideas to the table or pin up images of new projects around the world that they've seen that may not be easily accessible to all of us and just keep things current. I think that's one of the things that we rely upon is encouraging everyone in the office to have a voice around the table. I think that's a great segue into chatting a bit about the master plan effort for the Lower Don Trail. Mm-hmm. And obviously now with the context of how DTH works, we can kind of sink our teeth into this bigger project, which was, correct me if I'm wrong, six kilometer long corridor uh, extending from Pottery Road to the north, Parliament Street to the south. Obviously, it's not a one dimensional project by any stretch of the imagination. Why don't you set the stage for anyone listening, what that project was all about? Sure. So I think maybe one of the things to start with is just you know, what is a ravine and what are the ravines of Toronto? So if Toronto is a city built on Lake Ontario, but surrounded by and influenced very much by a network of ravines, which are depressed kind of creeks or valleys that cut through the city, and that in total, the territory of the ravines within Toronto represent about 30 times the size of Central Park. So it's a tremendous outdoor landscape resource, but because they are depressed or sunken relative to the street network and the the grid of the city, they are not necessarily at the front of one's mind when you live here. They aren't particularly well known, not broadly. Those who do know the ravines and, and use them and access them tend to like to keep them to themselves. <laughs> so are, the ravine, are they used more as like a public space for, for runners, you know, cyclists? Is that kind of the, 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 the kept secret of the locals? Yeah, there, it's, there's a trail system that connects them that is, is known by those who live adjacent to them, but not well communicated to the general public. And yes, the, they're used for walking, for biking, for picnics all of those things, but it, but are somewhat hidden. And for those of, of Torontonians who love them, I think in some ways intentionally kept to themselves as a, as, a, as a resource that they use and enjoy. And so there has been an effort in Toronto over the last, I think, decade or more to make the ravines more known, more kind of within the consciousness of the population of the city in one reason being that the city is growing exponentially. So Toronto is 
gaining population, I think, more quickly than any other city in North America. It is a tremendously robust economy and it just keeps growing. And so as the city intensifies and there's more people living in in the same territory, the open space resources within the city um, become increasingly important. The city's parks are very popular and very crowded at times, but the ravine system because it's a bit on the down low, has maintained a bit of an understated role in the public space resource of the city. But the city has acknowledged that given there's so many people moving here and and there's so much demand for open space, that there might be opportunities to make the ravines more accessible, more consciously a part of the open space network here in the city so that this population, the, the new population can utilize them but in the same breath, utilize them without ruining the character of the ravines that the people that know them now well hold very dear. So where is the, just to wrap our heads around where the Lower Don Valley is for this specific ravine or or system, if you refer to it that way. Sure. If we're looking at a map of the city of Toronto, kind of Mm -hmm. where does that fall? Yeah, so it's on the left-hand side of the city. (laughs) Sorry, the the east side of the city. So if you're looking at a map, it's on the right-hand side. It encloses or includes the Don River, which runs into Lake Ontario and is sort of bookended on the other side of the city, the West End, by the Humber River. So there's there's sort of two major bookends on either side of the downtown core. And the Don River connects a number of neighborhoods together, flanking on either side. So it's a really important resource. There's also a parkway already built within the, the Don Valley which was built sort of mid-century and, and required or involved a bit of adjustment to the river itself, the channelization of the river, which was something that people were doing mid-century that we've learned not to do anymore generally. So there's, there's the a parkway for vehicles. There's also significant railroad infrastructure within the Don River. And it all kind of empties out into Lake Ontario in currently a rather abrupt manner. There's essentially a right-hand turn <laughs> that the river makes um, into the, what's called the Keating Channel, which then opens into the, the port. But there are a number of initiatives, our master plan being one of them, that is looking to re-naturalize the, the Don Valley to make it more accessible and to also consider how flood impacts from the increasingly extreme weather events that we're having here in the city can be mitigated and controlled through naturalization of the Don River, both along its length as well as at its mouth. Our office is actually a few steps away from one of the tributaries of the Don River, the Rosedale Ravine. So we work actually at the threshold of the city and the and the dawn, and so it is a very mm. it's very front of mind or top of mind yeah. for us in particular. Yeah, I, for for obviously this is audio, so we don't have any video associated to this. But sitting in the offices here, it it, it is really on that edge between city life and we'll call it park life, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. You know, mm-hmm. we're 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 abruptly kind of butted up against really beautiful trees, and we're kind of sitting in nature, but take a block walk in the other direction and you're kind of walking into downtown Toronto. Yeah. So something that I was reading about for this project specifically has to do with, and this phrase stuck with me, is industrial dumping ground and ecological wasteland. 
what does that mean? What were all the challenges that are still occurring or perhaps were occurring in years past that you're addressing and how are you addressing that with this project? Mm-hmm. So the, the ravines of Toronto have, have historically been the one of the locations for industry in the city. So there were a number of factories that were built within the ravine systems because there was access to water and, and kind of early hydroelectric power and there was access to railway connections for freight as well as just the ease of movement within the ravine system as opposed to the grid of the city. So there are industrial sites within the ravine system, particularly the Dawn, that have been there for more than a century. But more recently in history, there have also been depots for other fairly functional uses like salt, road salt. We are a winter city, so we need salt for the roads and and the Dawn Valley has been historically a place to store those caches of material because, again, they're out of the way, they're easily accessible by vehicle, and we're seen as a, as, a, as a good way of connecting that resource to a large part of the city. And I think because the ravines are depressed relative to the rest of the city's fabric or the city grid, what you put down in the ravine isn't necessarily visible as you move around the city. And so again, historically, there have been a number of uses within the ravines that now we, we know not to replicate, but you know, the dumping of material has, has happened historically in those spaces. So the master plan for the Lower Dawn Trail attempts to address some of this historical use and correcting it, proposing new uses within the territories that were once used for industry or material storage and those new uses being more amenable to public access. So the road salt, for example, if there are other areas where that material can be stored, what is the potential for the the original site to do something else that might be more in keeping with our current understanding of the value of the ravines, which is as an open space resource. The industrial sites as well are being you know, reimagined. The Evergreen Brickworks is one of them that we worked on, which was a, a brick factory from the 19th century that, you know, was located in the Don Valley because there was a huge cache of clay there. So geologically, it made sense to be there. But, you know, after 100 years of operation, the, the site was abandoned and there were 16 buildings on 12 acres of land that needed a new use. And the population around the Don River and the Don Valley who, who love that space as an open space, thought, okay, there must be something more we can do with this factory. And, you know, with their leadership and the leadership of Evergreen, which is a not-for-profit here in, in Canada, um, focused on bringing nature back to cities, um, you know, established a new home for an environmental education within mm-hmm. Toronto that I think is unprecedented, in fact, in North America. Yeah. So there's, there's a number of sites that were underutilized historically that we are now, I think, taking more care in considering how we can utilize them for the public good. I, I want to ask about value and value proposition or value add. One of the biggest challenges I, I have to imagine with the work that you do is because it is so community focused and in many ways, there are a lot of natural features that you're having to research, understand better proposed solutions for, mm-hmm. how does that process, almost like a sales process work with the community, with decision makers, policy makers? What is the kind of the, the practicality of the 
of the approach for a master plan like this when there may be a ravine system included alongside abandoned buildings? Mm-hmm. How, how, do, how does one even begin to approach the complexities of all of those moving parts? There's a couple different ways, I think, of answering that question. One is acknowledging how many people are within a five or ten minute walk of this space. The population of Toronto being relatively dense, you know, you, you have thousands and thousands of people for whom the, the Don Valley is their only and most immediate landscape resource. They don't have a backyard, they're in a tower development or some other kind of urban development, and they need an open space or some green in order to live a, a kind of balanced and healthy life. And so by by capturing or understanding the, the scale of the population that would be impacted by positive change, that's one way of making the argument that, you know, as a city or as a as a landholder, it, it there is value in considering what more could be done here. I think there's also a recognition in Toronto that in order to continue to inspire and entice people to move here and invest here and build businesses here and build lives here, that this needs to continue to be a livable city. And a city that has sites and parks and buildings and a quality of space that is top-notch. Because people can move anywhere these days, right? Like, you don't have to live and go to an office and, you know, the world is very mobile now. And so for Toronto to maintain its position as one of the most desirable places to live, the municipality in particular needs to continue to invest in high quality space. That was going to be my next question is, you know, it's one thing to be a visionary, an architect, a a firm that has these ideas. And it's another thing entirely to be a policymaker or a citizen, mm-hmm. how much control or how much say does the community actually have in these projects? You present this master plan that may be wonderful. Where does the buck stop? Is it with the policymakers? Is it in Toronto or in Canada, perhaps? Where does it go from there? It depends on this, uh, the project. We certainly believe that the public has a great deal of influence on this work. The city of Toronto in, engaged a, what they called a ravine strategy a number of years ago, which did include public consultation around what the future of our ravines should be. Individual projects within the ravine system have also involved public consultation or engagement to shape the nature of the projects, but also maybe the, the phasing of work, the priorities of work. So one of the f- one of the priorities for the Lower Don Trail Master Plan was actually the trail itself, which is a is a relatively modest piece of construction. It's you know it's a three meter wide piece of asphalt, plus or minus that that extends through the ravine. But the quality of that piece of asphalt, the continuity of it, the ease of use of it is is something that a lot of people locally feel very strongly about because they use it on the weekends to bike, they, they walk their dog, they, they do everything on that trail. And so the, the trail itself is, is of huge import to the community. And therefore, the master plan looks at, okay, where are the awkward parts of the trail? Where are the bits that don't work right now? You know, you can't do a kind of an abrupt 90 degree turn on a bike on a trail. How do we make that, that trail more, more easily used, cycling on it safer when it is adjacent to a roadway? All of those things. And that was one of the main priorities, I think, coming in large part from community, the community's input, which is to say, you know, 
these bigger picture, big parks and, and lovely investments are great, but can we please just look at the trail as one of the first things that we do? And that, that I think, the influence of the, the community is very much felt there. And it's not a, you know, it's not over yet. We're still working through phases of that improvement. But I think the community has a huge role to play in the shaping of their city and the empowering the community to become more and more engaged and also giving them the tools to feed back effectively, I think, is one of the roles that architects have, especially architects working in the public sphere. Is it the role of the architect or is it the role of the community to say we need to see this park changed. We need to see this ravine changed. This trail needs to have improvement. I see where you come into the to the picture, mm-hmm. but does it start with you or did it start somewhere else? No, ideally it starts with the public identifying the need, articulating it to their local representatives, whether they be municipal politicians, their local councillors, or, you know, parks and st- rec staff or or city staff and then you know the the city goes through a process whereby they get help consulting help design but that consultation process doesn't end with the engagement of an architect then you know much of the public work that we do all the way through design there continue our continual kind of public engagements where we present our work to the public and get feedback and it's a very it's a very consciously executed process by which we you know we we try to understand the site and then we go to the public and we say okay you guys know it better than us have we got it right or are we missing something and then they let us know ideally it's a room filled with people often it's not but it could be a room filled with people that know you know every inch of the, t- the territory that you're working on and, and are a huge resource to us and then we go back to them after doing some work and we show them some you know, options or some sketches and we say, okay, we, we think that there is a number of different ways of looking at this. What resonates with you here? What, what do you think is not a good idea? And ultimately they give us that feedback. We go back again and, and with our clients as well, we consider all of that input in the final proposal or design that we, we put forward. And it's, it's a kind of collective effort. There are a lot of opinions always at the table, opinions from the public, opinions from the client side as well, and, and our own opinions. And I think one of the key aspects of a successful public engagement is just articulating everyone's opinions, being very transparent about it. And if we can't address or accommodate a particular point of view that we are very open and transparent about why. So if someone asks us about something like, can you not, you know, build a double-decker something, you know, that, that is just not not feasible for us, then it's it's our job to actually articulate back to that person making the request that, you know, this is the reason why, but understanding what your ambition is, we we can do this other thing that maybe meets the need in a different way. And, you know, it, it takes some it takes some getting used to working with the public in this way, but I think in our work, which I think is more than 70% public sector, many of us are, have become quite comfortable with this dialogue yeah. and with the idea that even if at times it feels like you might not be getting where you need to go, ultimately, if you find a solution that reflects everyone's inputs in a, in a thoughtful way, that, that, that typically or often makes the best outcome. Yeah. You're a trained architect, but we've spent most of this time not really talking about buildings. Mm -hmm. What other projects are you working on that are worth noting that you're excited about right now? Sure. There's a few 
projects here in Toronto and then some a, few, a bit further afield. So in Toronto at the moment, I'm working on a master plan for a TTC, which is the Toronto Transit Commission streetcar and bus maintenance facility on the Danforth, which is one of the main streets that runs east-west through Toronto. And this is a site that has this amazing existing building, which was built sort of in the early part of the 20th century and is surrounded by quite intact and vibrant residential neighborhoods and a commercial street that is one of the Danforth, which is one of Toronto's most vibrant kind of main streets. And we are trying to figure out how the site can be reused, how the building that exists there now that's no longer required by the TTC, how that building can be reused and how we can integrate new uses onto the site, including a potential for a new public library for the Toronto Public Library System, a new police station for the Toronto Police Services, as well as facilities for the administration of the TTC, which is a very different kind of use than historically what was done here, which was fixing streetcars. And so it's a site and a project that I think has a real potential to impact positively the surrounding neighbourhood and create a kind of new place or hub for the community. And that's a really exciting, challenging, but exciting project to be, to be working on currently. We are also working on a new farmer's market and cultural hub for the city of Niagara Falls. And located in the heart of the historical centre of the city, which is no longer... You know, the commercial centre of the city has moved towards the falls and, and is it's much more focused on the tourism industry, whereby the, the site that we're working on, which is near the main and ferry um, neighbourhood and, and close to the historical kind of battlefields of Lundy's Lane, was once a, a really vibrant part of the city, but is now, you know, needing reinvestment. And so this new farmer's market and cultural hub is intended to to serve the local community first and foremost, to bring food into that local community and allow for more and more farmers to sell within the city centre, as well as create a hub for local artists to work, showcase and share their work with the public. And so it's a really interesting project on a very interesting site that has two frontages, two different streets, wants to be pretty modest in scale. The building is only, I think, 15,000 square feet, so it's not a huge facility, but it's on a fairly big piece of land that is currently all parking lot. And the parking demand is not going away in Niagara Falls. The people are still quite dependent upon their vehicles, but the hope is to design a landscape surrounding the building that can be multifunctional. So the market hall in good weather can open up and spill out into a, into part of the parking lot that is kind of transformed into an outdoor plaza. Concerts can happen there, food truck festivals can happen there, all sorts of other events that are currently not possible in the existing farmer's market facility and I think will draw a huge amount of, of energy to the site and the surrounding neighbourhood, which it really would benefit from. Yeah. We're also working on a mixed-use development for the city of Guelph, which is just west of Toronto by about an hour. It is the one municipality in Ontario that voted and voted in a, a Green Party member to the provincial parliament. So it is a very forward-thinking community that are very invested in sustainability, in community gardening, in urban agriculture, and in being a kind of a collective 
city of, of citizens. And the development that we're working on is in partnership with Windmill Developers, which is a, a very green development company here in Canada, as well as Diamond and Schmidt Architects, and will involve or include a large volume of affordable housing, a new public library, as well as other community hub programs to create really a, a center of animation and activity and life in a part of the downtown core of Guelph, which is currently a, a surface parking lot. So that's also a really interesting project. It's going to be really challenging to see how we can marry the, the pretty ambitious sustainability objectives of the project, which includes a One Planet Living certification. It's a publicly funded you know, the, the site is in public hands currently, and there's a real desire to keep things responsible from a, an economical perspective and affordable with respect to housing. And so the combination of those ambitions is going to be interesting to see how we can make that work. Clearly, the work being done here is extremely contextual, very cross-disciplinary. You know, everyone works with everyone else, and it's it's a testament to the output of the work that DTH is doing. Before we wrap up, I always want to ask, who else is inspiring you? I mean, it, it seems like you have so many ideas, and the outcomes of these projects have come from so many different minds. Where do you gather your inspiration from? Does any one person or people or other studios come to mind that we should take a look at? Sure. Well, we travel a lot collectively, and I think that's one source of tremendous amounts of inspiration. So uh, I think there's there's individual project inspiration that comes from projects like the St. Pancras King's Cross redevelopment in London, England, which was done a master plan done by Allies and Morrison that really transformed a kind of transit hub into, in fact, a, a, a cultural and community hub for the entire city. And the power of that kind of transformation and in, and in in fact, in particular, the integration of open space into that kind of transit environment, as well as public art, was something that it, at King's Cross is really remarkably executed that I think we we certainly find inspiring. There's something to be said, I think, around our... We have an internal ambition to, to share information amongst ourselves, as well as our clients and the communities that we work with. One of the inspiring actors in this, this realm is actually Michael Green, who is an architect in Vancouver, who has been developing open source content around a tall wood buildings for the last number of years and is being, I think the generosity of sharing the information in particular in the way that, that he is doing and his group is doing is a really inspiring example of, you know, we can innovate individually or we can innovate collectively. And I think the maybe it's a Canadian thing, maybe it's just where we all are now at, in 2018, that if we can share information, it just it improves the entire kind of playing field. And it's to our own best interest to share what we learn and the research that we conduct and the lessons that, that are learned from projects past and present, and he's really showing us all how that can be done in, a, in an incredibly effective way. Like, you can download the guides and the research that he's done off the website. There's no cost. It's, it's a very inspiring kind of effort that he's making to, to up new, our collective game. Sounds like new for the industry, too. 
tremendously new and really influential in terms of the construction industry here, especially around, you know, how do we build buildings that are, you know, not a, a, a skyscraper? Like, wh- how do we build that kind of urban fabric that in the cities that's often sort of six to eight to ten stories tall in a way that is more economical, ideally, more beautiful, more inspiring, and using more local materials? Certainly in BC, but also in Quebec and other parts of Canada, wood is a, is a, is a very local resource. And so the, the technology and innovation in that realm is, is tremendously important um, for our industry. Lots of innovation happening. Even in the waterfront here, I mean, we've been lucky enough to work with Waterfront Toronto on a number of projects, but you know, sidewalk labs have, have come in and are um, influencing the way in which the future of Toronto's waterfront is executed. And you know, the, the spotlight is on us in, in that regard. And so I think the other thing that is inspiring to watch, I think, is the growth of the design culture here in Toronto. So I think probably 20 years ago, Toronto was much less well-versed in, in terms of design, the value of design, not only in buildings, but also in streets and parks and open space, and how that value can be engendered and supported through putting our best efforts into the public sphere with respect to design. So cultures like in Denmark, design is much more consciously in mind. And Toronto is beginning to develop that. And there have been projects like Sugar Beach on the waterfront, which is a design by Claude Cormier from Montreal. You know, it's a very whimsical park immediately adjacent to a sugar refinery that is still in operation. And it includes these lovely pink umbrellas and other aspects and elements within the landscape that are unique to Toronto's waterfront. There was some debate early on in the life of that project as to whether it made sense to invest in these elements. They're, they're whimsical, they're kind of silly, you know, why do we need to spend money on this? But I think the lesson is slowly being learned both within the leadership of our various governments, but also within just the man on the street, that investing in the public realm, investing in parks and making actually unique places within the city for the public, that investment comes back to you tenfold in terms of the investment within the private side. Um, Headquarters wanting to move here, developers wanting to build here, the number of cranes up in the city. A lot of that comes from setting the stage within the public realm for high quality, highly livable and desirable place to be. Mm. And I think that the population here and the community that we, we engage with, their ambitions are much higher now than they were 20 years ago in terms of design. They want the top notch, they want the showpiece, the thing that they can be proud of and that the thing that will bring people from elsewhere to their site to take a look because we have so much choice nowadays as to where we spend our time and where we spend our money that there's a a real desire to make places here that are memorable and design has a real role in that. Yeah. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. Before we jump off here, tell us what you're up to and maybe where we can find more information online. Sure. So um, our website, dtah.com, is one source of information and includes news and updates on a fairly frequent basis. We're also active on Instagram and Twitter with the handle DTAH. Uh, And I I have my own personal Instagram account as well, which I'm happy to to share with those who are interested. Um, Megan, thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can subscribe through your favorite outlets, including SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Thanks for joining us.